Before we kick off this new edition of Calling the Shots with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, a word for our friends at the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac, Dan, the, the Bible of the game. Just last month, we had the bustling 2020 edition, which was documenting one of the most memorable summers of all time. Ah, didn't it just? And at this time of lockdown, I find myself <laughs> going to it more than ever before, don't you? I mean, it's, I suppose the lack of cricket is so extreme that just to be able to relive that, it sort of takes you back. It takes us out of lockdown and into a happier place. I've been uh, adding to my collection of Wisdom Almanacs during the break, actually. I'm trying to get every edition in my lifetime on, on the shelf. Uh, it, it's uh, not too much of an effort when you consider that there are some people out there who've got all 157. And Dan, you've got more than most. I do have more than most. Unfortunately, I, I, I lost some in a, in, a, in, a, in a basement flood, which has been unfortunate. So I've got to get them got to get them all back again but i'm sitting in front of me is the 1978 edition and it's kind of important because it's germane to this week's episode of calling the shots Uh, because of course it was 1978 edition that looked back at the 1977 packer case which raged in the high courts Um, what's beautiful about this is gordon ross writes a very nice factual description of what happened in that court case we've uh, been mugging up on it of course for this episode but straight after it it goes straight into another court case. A village cricket club on April the 6th, 1977, won the support of the Appeal Court in London, can you believe they took it this far, to carry on playing and hitting boundaries. By a two-to-one majority, the court lifted a legal ban on the hitting of sixes into a neighbouring garden. So, evidently, somebody was extremely unhappy, kept on having the ball hit into their garden, and uh, and uh, took the club to court. Uh, so it's, these, it's these kind of nuggets that appear to appeal to the nuffy, but you know, you've got the five cricketers of the year, you've got all the, it was an ashes summer, 1977, which you get in the 1978 edition, with the, and that sort of the last one really before the, the whole Packer affair blew up, changing cricket forever. Uh, in the 2020 edition, if you want to pick it up, wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2020. One of the great initiatives uh, they have there at the Almanac is, is making sure that it's a book for everyone. So if you want to put it on your shelf, that's great. And of course, if you uh, do subscribe, you get a hefty discount. We'll come to that in a moment. But Daniel, there's the audio book, there's the, the, the e-book. And if you're listening to a cricket podcast or if you're scrolling through on your phone, it couldn't be any easier to access the, the best stuff in the Almanac. Some of those essays each year, which... I mean, they, they take months to compile and the editor, Lawrence Booth, takes a long time in commissioning them as well. So it's not just a, a book of record. You get some fantastic cricket writing in there as well. Well, you really do, don't you? I mean, in the 2020 edition, you've got Colin Schindler looking back at 50 years since the summer demonstrations against the South African tour of 1970. You've got Nick Holt, who, of course, writes for Daily Telegraph, who's written a superb piece on the birth of the 100. Uh, take seemingly a hundred sources he's gone to in order to compile that it's i mean it's proper cricket writing from the very best cricket writers isn't it that's what you're going to get in a cricket bible now the best way to, to buy the almanac is to subscribe so wisdomalmanac.com forward slash subscribe that means that you can get the book each year for 25 quid instead of 55 quid so i mentioned there's a number of ways you can collect it with the ebook or or the audio book which is fantastic terry blake voices that this year um he's got a voice even perhaps nicer than yours daniel um but um the traditional bible itself is better than half price if you like if you go on there and jump to wisdom.com wisdomalmanac.com even forward slash subscribe it's an absolute steal at 25 quid for a a book that has i think i'm right in saying it doesn't it have more than a million words in each edition spanning something like 1200 pages so you certainly get your money's worth there and and daniel if you are a subscriber there are a bunch of other benefits as well certainly are you get entitled to exclusive discounts on wisdom cricket monthly the magazine of course that we both write for the night watchman 
a priority access to Wizard events and a site-wide 35% discount on all books on Bloomsbury.com. I mean, if you're in lockdown, what else have you got to do except read? You know, watch a bit of telly, but read. It's better for you. Well put, Dan. WisdomAlmanac.com forward slash subscribe. Follow it all, of course, on the social media channels at Wisdom Almanac as well. And with all that said, Daniel, let's get on with the show. As Holly pitches the ball up slowly and he's bold. Bradman, bold, Holly's, no. Comes in, volley to Bradman. Spore well pitched, Bradman moves forward, drives. Covenant cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball and it races away for another four. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it, it's all, it's high, it's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so it's all, oh, it's a one And he's done it. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. Oh, Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. Harmison comes up and bowls and Kasparovic goes back and parries one as he caught down the left side. There's an appeal for catches out. England have won. Got him! Why did he do that? Unbelievable. And now both for Bolton! Pat Cummins from the far end. He bowls to Stokes, who hammers it for four! And stands there with the back raised. I can't believe we've seen that. They're looking for that, let alone chasing it. It's gone straight into the confectionery stall and out again. I'm Adam Collins. I'm Daniel Norcross, and this is Calling the Shots, presented by The Pinch Hitter. That's the new fortnightly digital magazine containing some of the best cricket writing in the world. That's right. It's a terrific initiative supporting freelance cricket writers at this particularly challenging time. So jump on thenightwatchman.net to read the latest edition of The Pinch Hitter. The link to that is also in the show notes for the episode. Adam and I, over six episodes, are tracing the century-long history of cricket commentary on radio and television. From the Australian and English pioneers of the 1920s and 1930s to the internationally recognised names we know today. Exploring what makes a great commentator and how their broadcasts come to inform our understanding of the game we love. Over the last two episodes, our attention was squarely on the development of radio commentary, from its modest beginnings into an institution of the game. Today, on part four, we shift gears. Television. And to help us tell that story, we have four guests. I grew up watching every ball. Welcome to Mark Nicholas, who for the last 25 years has been broadcasting international cricket around the world. My routine was to watch the play in the hours of play and that's all I did 
So mum had to have lunch ready at one thirty, and we started again at ten past two. And tea had to be at ten past four and started again at half past four. And then at the close of play, I would replace Jim Swanton and do the summary to my mum or dad if he came home from work. You know, and that was what happened. I'm not saying this was a negotiable thing. I did an interview Richie Benno. He faxed me his answers. That's Dan Waddell, the prolific author and historian who wrote, And Welcome to the Highlights. And he gave me his sort of rules on commentary by fax. TV started in Australia, middle of the year. Of course, returning to the show, that's Jim Maxwell. The very first person, would you believe, other than the Prime Minister, on the ABC was Michael Chuck, who's still with us today, living in London, and was a significant early voice in the, the history of cricket broadcasting. 96, 97, 98, 99 were the big big years of the spread of television and last but not least Harsha Bogle the defining voice of Indian cricket and there was a tide and we were just floating along on it this week our focus is on television where did it begin and how did it leave its mark so indelibly on the game of cricket itself we begin our story by returning to Len Hutton's record-breaking summer of 1938 but this time we're not at the Oval we've crossed the river to Lords. only a few thousand people had TV sets in those days and it could only be broadcast in sort of the London area uh, because of the lack of transmitters. Their only experience was the 1937 coronation of King George VI. The glory of a British coronation. Nowhere in the world is there anything half so wonderful. For May the 12th, 1937, will be one of the dates in English history that the schoolchildren will learn about, maybe a thousand years from now. The same team covered the 1938 Ashes series with two cameras, one following the bowler run-up, one focusing on the, on the batsman and then shots of the crowd from the, from the top of the tavern and they'd built a platform for the commentator who was Captain Henry Thornton Blythe Wakelam, Teddy Wakelam. They had a few problems just logistically because the, the gates weren't big enough to get the TV truck in. There was a lot of teething troubles. Wakelam had little time for cricket on the radio, believing that the slow pace of the game made it entirely unsuitable. TV was for him a far better medium, and in the early days the BBC took the coverage in just three blocks of one hour spread out across the day. Press coverage was immediately gushing with praise and wonder. The Times reporting that test cricket was the delight of viewers, and to see the batsman sending the ball to the boundary and to hear the roar of the crowd, the viewer must have felt himself on the pitch. And joining Wakelam in the commentary box the following year was a familiar name to calling the shots listeners. Commander Tommy Woodruff, who's well known for giving a commentary whilst well refreshed. But within a few weeks of the Oval Test of 1939, the war put everything on hold. When Test Cricket returned in 1946, the BBC's outside broadcasts could still only reach London, but expanded to Birmingham in 1950, with Leeds and Manchester following in 1952. Helpfully, this was in time for Fred Truman's first Test match as the Indians capitulated, losing their first four wickets in the second innings without scoring a run. A young Brian Johnston and Aidan Crawley had been on the mic through this period, and Johnston didn't take long to establish himself as the top dog. He only became the first voice of TV cricket. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. And the race of all time. What a scene here. And complimenting the new boys was an experienced radio man from before the war. E.W. Swanton uh, was famous for his end-of-play summaries. Swanton would face the camera 
and do an in-vision talk in which he would recount the day's play, and his word was final. But the pictures by modern standards remained rudimentary. With only three cameras, it was impossible to capture all the action. Catches in the deep and square of the wicket were routinely missed. And a style of commentary specific for television had yet to be developed. Luckily for Johnston, he was working alongside a forward-thinking producer, Anthony Craxton, and between them, they soon drew up a list of do's and don'ts for commentators. Writing in armchair cricket in 1956, Johnston clearly laid out what would later come to be known as Benno's Law. Say nothing unless you're adding to the picture. But while the BBC still had only one channel to play with, cricket had internal battles to navigate in order to get airtime. The problem with in the 1950s was going off to Andy Pandy. And it reached the point, they tried to get Children's Hour moved. That's not going to happen. You know, the people who ran Children's Hour, they were formidable. They then tried to get Children's Hour cut in half, so it would be Children's Half Hour. So it would be on 6.30 to 7. They suggested that and said Brian Johnston could adapt his commentary to be suitable for children. Eventually, in 1964, that problem was solved by the arrival of a second channel, BBC Two. The groundwork had been laid, the infrastructure was in place, and developments in the format of cricket would now lead to a period of unrivalled dominance for the BBC that would last for the next 35 years. Meanwhile, over in Australia, television was advancing at a slower pace, but a major global event, the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, would provide the impetus required for rapid change, and cricket would be its beneficiary. Good evening, and welcome to television. An historic match took place in the Olympic City a few weeks after the close of the Games, and the TV cameras were there to catch the action live for the very first time. New South Wales played Victoria, and would you believe the match ended up in a tie? And the ABC was covering cricket from the outset of television's introduction in Australia, and Sydney and Melbourne were able to do... The last session. The geographical challenge that Australia presented to the emerging technology was much more acute than in the UK. But the ABC did manage to get up and running for test matches two summers later, the 1958-59 Ashes. At the forefront of that series was a man who will play a big part in the unfolding story. It was only right that his first test as captain was the first to be shown on Australian TV. Yes, we're very, very happy. I'm very happy myself. I'm very proud of the boys, and uh, I can assure you they're happy too. The TV cameras also proved hugely influential in exposing a scandal that otherwise may never have been scrutinised. Ian Meckiff, the Australian quick, had demolished England in 58-59 and helped secure an unlikely victory for the hosts. But TV evidence showed that all was not right with the left armour's action. It was a controversy that would be ramped up again ahead of Australia's next visit to England in 1961. Cricket recovered from bodyline. Today there's throwing. Will it be banned or tolerated in big cricket next season? Throwing by fast bowlers might mean the death of somebody sooner or later. By 1963, Mecca's career was in ruins. TV cameras by their mere presence had caused the change to the game itself. As the 60s wore on, the expansion of the ABC's reach across the vastness of Australia fuelled the growing expectation of viewers and created a consistent approach. The dominant voices were Frank Tyson and Norman May, and uh, they carried the coverage around people like Bob Simpson and uh, Keith Miller, but it was more like uh, voices hidden behind the curtain. You didn't see their faces very often. The ABC settled into this rhythm for the next decade. Nothing flashy, nothing too demonstrative, but a comfortable rhythm nonetheless. Then, in 1975, Australian viewers got their first taste of overseas action with the final of the World Cup. And that's out. The fourth run out of the innings. A very fast throw from Holder. 
I wouldn't mark it down as one of the best pieces of running between the wickets I've ever seen. And Max Walker is out. So now we have four runouts in this Australian innings. By now, with cricket on colour television, the interest was piqued of a man who would go on to not only dramatically transform how cricket was broadcast in Australia, but would shake the game's foundations to the core. Kerry Packer. And he made no bones about it. He wanted the cricket on his commercial network at Channel 9. But due to the loyalty the Australian Cricket Board felt towards the ABC, they were having none of Packer's hefty bid for the rights ahead of the 1976-77 season. He was furious. Then, the MCG centenary test of March 1977 rolled around. One of the most spookily brilliant games of cricket ever played. And through again. It's racing out towards the boundary. It might get there. Let's see what happens. It's very close indeed. And the ball will win five in a row. Hooks from 36 to 56 in five balls. And there's a wonderful innings. I'm sure he'll get this man will get a standing ovation for this extraordinary performance of scoring 174. One of the finest innings we've seen in years and years on this Melbourne ground. And the player, Derek Randall. It was there that Packers' allies were actively recruiting players for a breakaway competition slated for the following summer. The Australians, who had long complained about their pay and conditions, needed little convincing. And young guns like Hooks joined established stars like the Chapel brothers Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh. Seemingly, everyone was in on it by the time the story broke two months later, including England's skipper Tony Gregg. The test matches might have been staying with the ABC per the establishment's insistence, but the new attraction was moving to Channel 9 with Packers World Series cricket. After two decades of stability, two fractious summers followed like no other. That marked a point in the history of cricket in so many ways, but in terms of broadcasting, it was the ABC's last exclusive test match coverage in the centenary test. In the first 20 years after the war, the BBC had maintained a mostly settled line-up on TV with Johnston at the helm, flanked by Swanton and Peter West. Ex-pros such as Dennis Compton, Jack Fingleton and Ted Dexter appeared as summarisers, but the main callers were avowedly broadcasters. But as the 60s wore on and the distinction between gentlemen and players was abandoned on the pitch, the BBC began to look for a commentator that could bring with him the expertise that came with playing cricket at the highest level. And whom should they recruit but an Australian? who had first appeared as a summariser for them back in 1964 and had been learning his craft for some time before that. Way back in 1956, um, when uh, Daphne, who was with BBC, went on the official television course for BBC, uh, later in that year I had an unofficial course organised for me and I did this course three weeks, 11am until midnight, every day of the three weeks, to learn about television because that was the year it started in Australia. We were all taken by Richie right from the off on TV. He had such knowledge. If he said it, he, that's an amazing gift, isn't it? If he says it, it must be right. By the end of the 60s, Johnston had fallen out of favour. His frivolous and jovial approach was considered out of step with the new direction in which the programme was heading. In his place, Jim Laker, the retired spinner, was recruited to commentate. All the while, the sheer volume of cricket on TV was being ramped up thanks to the addition of BBC Two affording them more airtime. Even county championship cricket was now getting a regular showing, including the day Sobers went wild in Wales. And he's done it! He's done it! And my goodness, it's gone way down to Swansea. Six on the trot, 36 and one over. My goodness gracious, what an over. 
The one-day international had yet to be invented, and while test cricket remained the pinnacle, in truth, the 60s were a dreary decade on the pitch, with attritional cricket and innumerable drawn matches. The BBC was worried that cricket was becoming a turn-off, and in an echo of later times, pushed the authorities to consider innovation on the pitch. They were very much at the forefront of pushing one-day cricket and seized on the Gillette Cup when it first started. Four runs, 50 to Proctor. And my word, is getting a great hand from the locals here. And once they saw how well this new 65-over cricket worked, their appetite for limited overs matches grew insatiable as the formats became shorter and shorter. The International Cavaliers, with, with names like Sobers and Benno and Ted Dexter, fitted the bill ideally for Sunday afternoons and, and the sort of long yawning schedule they had there. They launched Sunday League cricket, the John Player League. And to placate the traditionalists, who should be on mic but Test Match Special's master commentator? John Arler always did the Sunday League. And you find a lot of guys are different on radio and TV. He wasn't really. You always got his emotional attachment to the game. I always felt that John characterised cricket, perhaps best of all, from the layman's point of view. Just one more fall like that will end the game. And it's Peter Robinson to Garfield Silvers. Well, and there's two extra for luck. No, no, it counts. Just inside. Four, and that's enough. So, the Cavaliers win their hundred guineas, and Dennis Compton is to collect it. But Arlett was confined on TV to the Sunday League alone. The move to former players calling the action was in full force when England played. Benno and Lakeo were now the main men, and Johnston's former no-frill sidekick, Peter West, took on the role of presenter. Peter West was a consummate sort of TV pro. That He loved his cricket, he loved his rugby, and he, he sort of fitted in. By the mid-70s, the Benno, Laker and West trio were ubiquitous and revelling in the rise of a West Indian team that would dominate cricket for years to come. Oh, that's a glorious shot, glorious stroke. Oh, what a marvellous shot. That really was a superb stroke. And that's it. Clipped away nonchalantly and elegantly. Oh, Richard's going on to a second double century in this Test Match series. In many ways, the mid to late 70s was the peak for cricket on BBC TV. The schedules were full and the commentators respected, but the coverage itself was not moving on. That same comfortable rhythm that the ABC had found in Australia was being replicated in England. In the 70s, a guy called Nick Hunter turned up who was a bit younger, who, who knew that the, the coverage was, getting, was too staid and, and, and dull, and it could be done better. Hunter had pioneered the televised coverage of snooker, and is widely credited for inventing the split screen that transformed darts into the perfect televisual experience. But his ideas for how cricket on TV might be advanced were falling on deaf ears. He decided to move on. Had he stuck with cricket, perhaps the story might have been different. Instead, that comfortable familiarity remained, while change was afoot on the other side of the world. Packers World Series cricket had arrived, and while it took some time to capture the public's imagination, the players at his disposal ensured it wouldn't take long. Oh, good morning and welcome to VFL Park Melbourne for the first day of uh, the opening super test of the series between the Australians and the West Indians. It was perceived at the time as a commercial heist, and it was only when people understood that he had a true love for the game that they began to realise there was something behind it. He had night cricket in his head. He had the white ball. He had the coloured clothes. They were all in Kerry's head. There was something 
of the genius in him. Kerry had the eye for television. Packer also demanded more from his commentators that had been the norm on the national broadcaster. He directed them to be part of the excitement, part of the draw. He wanted uh, an energy, constant energy. He's hit it many a mile. He's six rounds and it's over. A magnificent hit from Wayne Daniel. McLean pitching down the wet side. And look at the jubilation in the Western Union room. And rightly so. All going good at late shot. Over the ground at VFL Park for six runs. And what a finish. That energy was married with a raft of technological advancements that brought the game closer to those watching from their living rooms, laying the roadmap for what would soon become expected of all broadcasters. David Hill, who was the producer for World Series Cricket, he decided we need to see the bowler running in towards the batsman. They were interviewing players when they were dismissed. That feeling of sort of intimacy with the game um, was very, very important. Within two years, peace had been struck between Packer and the ACB. He had won the war. Cricket was moving to nine, full-time. And front and centre was the man with the silver hair and the cream jacket. The man who had been learning, then plying his trade on English TV for 15 years, but had been curiously overlooked by the ABC. Here he is now facing Alderman. What a delivery! What a breakthrough! Benno was without doubt the most authoritative voice in the game, not because of what he said, but what he didn't say, because he used uh, the medium so brilliantly. A lot of dry humour at, at times, but his timing was superb. Ben I brought a, a vision and interpretation of the proceedings, uh, spot-on analysis uh, that was, was hard to beat and, and did it in a very eloquent and uh, stylish manner. He was uh, a papal figure in the game. What he said came over with some gravitas. And that gravitas was called upon when the strain of the constant cricket demanded by Packer became too much for Greg Chappell in 1981, resulting in the Under Armour affair. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a very poor performance. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Good night. Benno was the undisputed leader, but his supporting cast, all former international captains, all instantly recognisable, came into their own through the 1980s. A lot was made of the Tony Gregg-Bill Laurie partnership because they had a friendship and an interaction. Got it! It's for Australia! They've won with five remaining, so the runabout ends the end of a very memorable test match. Victory by 55 runs, five wickets to Peter Sweep, one of the all-time great test matches. But actually, Tony Gregg with Ian Chappell was really good. Greggy was generally high, but could also talk the techniques of the game. Ciappelli was generally more reflective. That's beautifully hooked. That's one way to stop a fair amount of short pitch bowling. Keep hooking him like that. Yes, that's the best way, by miles. That's a, a magnificent shot. Two men back down there. He was a lot fonder of Australia than he cared to pretend in his broadcasting. It was, he was very clever in the way he set himself up as the dark side. Lily in to bowl the last ball of the day. He's bowled him! He's bowled him! The last ball of the day. Lily heading one to nip back, finding the inside edge and bowling out for Richards. Well, what a magnificent start for Australia. The West Indies four down for ten. And the crowd absolutely astounded. No cricket commentary team has been able to match the original Channel 9 
four, Benno, Laurie, Chapel, and Greg, and it's just everything is compared back to them and considered not the same. Time for a quick break on calling the shots. When we return, India joins the party. We're sitting in the stands in the Vankhede Stadium, in the Garware uh, pavilions. The first two rows were our commentary box. So if someone came and slapped us on the head from behind, there's nothing we could do. Daniel, while we take this break in calling the shots, a word for Lords Taverners, who are the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity, an organisation which you have plenty to do with. I really do, yes. They've been around for 70 years. And in the early days, well, well into the 70s, 80s, they used to have a... Uh, they would have been best known, I suppose, because of their celebrities that were attached to them. John Cleese, Willie Rushton, sort of giants. Harold Pinter, I think. Uh, all giants of... Uh, of culture in England in the 60s, 70s, 80s. But it's not really about that. The Lord's Taverners does incredibly important work in the community. And it's more than at any time ever probably important that they get as much support as they possibly can. They're the leading UK youth cricket and disability sports charity. And the work they do is really quite awe-inspiring. They have a wickets program that goes out into the community to try to um, better create community cohesion through cricket all of their events are done with cricket in mind um and they're just a, a splendid splendid charity they've been around for a long time I, I do quizzes for them uh online at the moment which is quite vexing i have to tell you trying to come up with 30 questions that are original uh, but you know they're a huge part of the fabric of the cricket family and i urge you to support them check out their website find out all the different functions that they have on and all the different programs they have going uh, table cricket i don't know if you've ever seen table cricket it's absolutely awe-inspiring essentially it's on like a kind of ping pong table sort of it's an adaptive form of the game uh, played as uh, it is on a table tennis table for those with severe learning or physical disabilities gives them a chance to experience the sport that we all love and you know they do proper tournaments on it it's, it's I'll watch any cricket, but I really, really love table cricket, actually. I want to have a crack at it. Yeah, it breaks down barriers and empowers disadvantaged and disabled young people in the UK to fulfil their potential and build life skills. It's also a lifeline for some at-risk communities in the UK tackling issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation and isolation. I suppose it's something where we're all feeling now at the moment. And indeed, Dan, in this period of isolation, it's important to reinforce the message that these charities do continue. And, and, and if you can afford to be generous uh, through this time, it's all the more important. Lordstaverners.org is the website. Very straightforward. www.lordstaverners.org. Their um, link will be in the show notes. And if you can jump on there and raise awareness to the fantastic work that they are doing, it would be most appreciated. Here, here. Welcome back to Calling the Shots. By the early 1980s, television had yet to make its mark on India. It was radio or nothing for cricket lovers. We had a broadcaster then called AFS Talyar Khan. And he would do the broadcast all day, every day, all by himself. But the radio was where the family gathered. And radio was the medium of cricket. However, in 1983, the ground shifted as India flabbergasted all comers by doing what no other side had managed, beating the all-conquering West Indians in the World Cup final. Doodash ensured that we never missed it because they had it on virtually every day. It got to a stage where I could I could tell you when the bowler was running and what was going to happen on it. I'd seen it so many times. He's gone! Caught Lloyd! Tackled out the skipper at 
for cover. Lloyd is caught 66 for five and West Indies in total disarray now. India have struck with almost nothing to bowl at. 183 their total. And now the world champion 66 for five. It's impossible to overestimate the impact of that win. It sent demand for cricket on TV in India soaring. The only problem was that there was no reliable infrastructure to meet that new demand. I did my first test match in 1984. I was sitting in the stands in the Vankede Stadium, in the Garware uh, pavilions. The first two rows were our commentary box. So if someone came and slapped us on the head from behind, there's nothing we could do. We just started the game doing commentary. That's it. By 1991, India was reeling more generally. The government had pledged all their sovereign gold and were about to become bankrupt. But at the national election that year, Narasimha Rao won a mandate on a platform of liberalising India's economy. Everything was about to change. India had no choice but to get foreign investment into India. Otherwise, we were gone. In the, in the, by 91, we had three weeks. So the economy opened, customs duties were slashed, import duties were slashed, and, it became, uh, and India opened its doors to the world economy. One consequence of the reforms was the pluralisation of Indian broadcasting. But having operated in a one-channel state until this point, there was plenty of catching up to be done by those who entered the market. Crucially, that included ESPN, where Bogle himself soon found a home in front of the camera as part of a fledgling new operation. He was raw by the time we learned what colours to wear, what kind of glasses to wear, comb your hair or no. He was so naive. He was so naive, knew nothing. This opened the door to commentators who had established reputations outside of India to make a mark as well, endearing themselves to the burgeoning local audience. And it's bowled him, it's bowled him, and it's all over. Come in to know, two stumps on the ground, and Kumble has taken his sixth wicket. The West Indies all out for 123. India have won the Hero Cup by 102 runs. In this fluid environment, being in the right place at the right time proved enormously helpful. By 95, they needed an Indian face. I was told a day before that I'm, I'm hosting the telecast of the 95 uh, India New Zealand series. I had no idea what, what live telecast meant. So Anita and me have actually gone to the Raymond store looking for jackets. And they only had double-breasted jackets in their shop that day. So we bought two double-breasted jackets, one of which had very fine checks, which you would never wear on television because of picture strobes. Good morning and welcome to the Eden Gardens in Calcutta for the third day of what's been a sensational test match so far. You learned by making mistakes. But now, as money poured into India from abroad, the country was in a hurry. The multinationals were carried away by one factor, and that was per capita consumption. They saw the huge potential and they said, we must get into every corner of India. How do you get into every corner of India? You get in through movies and you get in through cricket. And just as Bradman had fueled a boom in the 1930s, Another man was attracting enormous interest, riding the wave of the new prosperity, Sachin Tendulkar. Because he's a product of the economic growth of India. Once India opened up and a lot of overseas investment came in, it brought in overseas television production, it brought in overseas companies, and they were looking for Indian heroes. In a matter of just a few years, the benefits of a positive feedback loop were becoming clear, with cricket and the fortunes of the country growing side by side. And because cricket and Tendulkar were becoming bigger by the day, cricket was the biggest source of entertainment. There was no better time for the World Cup to return to the subcontinent than 1996. In 1987, when India played host, Dordashan needed to rope the BBC in to help them put on a suitable outside broadcast. Now, nine years later, an international team of commentators was assembled, 
including all of Channel 9 stars. And on the field, India's prodigy was going great guns. It was the perfect combination. 96 was in many ways Tendulkar's World Cup. Uh, we had big crowds, everybody was watching television. And that 96 quarterfinal between India and Pakistan in Bangalore, it was the single most viewed television program in the history of Indian television. Oh, and a big appeal, he's got him! Fast ball! At RBW! Well, the Indians are rejoicing. This is some victory. By then, television in India was firmly entrenched. With his performance on the field, combined with rapid commercialism, Tendulkar broke out of the confines of cricket to become omnipresent across India, endorsing some of the biggest brands of the world. Pepsi came in and hired Tendulkar along with the film stars, made these fabulous Tendulkar commercials that were beamed not just on cricket but on popular entertainment. Meet Sachin Tendulkar. Just plain greedy. When it runs, wants a ton. When it's Pepsi, wants a truck. Pepsi. Nothing official about it. This reached fever pitch when Tendulkar's star met another in the TV box during a 1998 tournament. To this day, remembered by Indian fans in just two words. Desert Storm. So Tendulkar versus Australia, that whole 98 series, he was he was incredible. He went there, as it turns out, it's his 25th birthday. And if someone from overseas comes and says nice things about your players, then you feel even better. It's, it's all the way. It's way over the top, into the crowds again. Session Tendulkar wants to win this match. Oh, he's hit this one, Miles. Great shot. Oh, it's a biggie. Straight over the top. The little man has hit the big fella for six. All of India was going along with Tony. Tendulkar was the star. But did Tendulkar ever happen? If there was no Tony Greg, Tendulkar showed the world, but more important, showed India, that an Indian could be the best at something he does. As for Bogle, he was fast discovering that the frenetic obsession with cricket that was being unleashed brought with it a remarkable amount of fame and notoriety, not just for the players, but the commentators too. Anyone who's in front of the camera becomes an entity. And because at that time no one else was in front of the camera for cricket, suddenly you started getting noticed. In India they call him the voice of cricket. Officially, of course, he's only a cricket commentator, but in fact he's probably more popular than most of the players he talks about. Today's your chance to find out just how this has happened as I introduce you to the one and only Harshab Hogle. Commentators were now reaching every corner of India. The megastars on the mic were now shaping what was going on in the middle in ways they couldn't possibly have anticipated just 10 years earlier. Raul Dravid said once, that the best coach that rural India ever had, the best cricket coach rural India ever had, was television. Sehwag used to sit in his house with a bat in his hand. Every time Tendulkar defended a ball on television, he would defend the ball in his house. If Tendulkar played a backfoot punch, he would play a backfoot punch in his house and then listen to people like Boycott and Gavaskar deconstructing techniques. In England, a surge quite like this hadn't been experienced since the brilliant team of the 1950s were making their way under Peter May and Colin Cowdery. Indeed, it was estimated that more than 5 million Britons were watching the most dramatic moments of the 1961 Ashes. But by the 80s, the programme had perhaps slipped into a predictable groove. Take this sign-off to a tight one-day international between England and Australia during the summer of 1985. Well, all I can say at the end of a heavenly day here, it's been the most beautiful sunny day, is that if the other two Texaco Trophy matches are as well contested, nobody really ought to complain. We leave you 
on this lovely sunny evening at Old Trafford with a shot of the Derbyshire Hills. I've never seen them so sharply delineated. Good night. Benno is still there. Welcome to the highlights of the first day's play of this second test match. England and India at Headingley, a marvellous day weather-wise. But unlike Channel 9, the BBC were doing little to promote him or elevate the quality of their broadcast. It was only in 1989 that they screened the coverage from both ends of the ground. I think the idea that it could be done better it was never really considered. This is the way we've always done it and this is the way we're going to continue to do it. As for overseas coverage, highlights from Channel 9 would be shown but live cricket had been confined to the odd day here and there when the Ashes were on the line, until pay television arrived in the UK at the start of a new decade. Sky come along in the, in the early 90s and they start covering overseas tours. And the Rupert Murdoch-owned B Sky B was an instant hit. It was magical. And you saw that white light, those thrilling sequences with the crowds and actually some phenomenal cricket because England played out of their boots against the odds, against a good West Indies side. Yes, he's gone, he's out, run out. Beautiful throw in there from the deep. Devon Malcolm fumbled the ball. In came the throw and boy, over the bales it was. England have struck and we have a run out. There's an old line from the people in the marketing department at Sky. At Sky Cricket won us Surrey. So for the first time, Surrey or Middle England could, could turn on cricket in the winter. Sky had seen what was possible and hired John Gaylard, who had worked for Channel 9 as a producer. That prompted Sky, when they got the rights, to try to track that Channel 9 journey. They even hired Tony Gregg. Earning his stripes on those away tours with Sky was a young Mark Nicholas, who was to prove hugely influential in the next development of broadcasting in England. This really has been a day when sport has been king. This has been entertainment unparalleled in the history of the game with the match ending drawn with the scores level. All credit to the players for that. For the moment, it's goodbye from Bulawayo. Soon, Sky wanted a larger slice of the cake, and particularly, they wanted to expand into home internationals. Thinking to the future, government intervention would be needed to fully satisfy their appetite, and they got it with the support of the TCCB. Vic Wakeling, who was running Sky Sport, asked me and Bob Willis to prepare for him a future programme of scheduling for Sky Cricket on the basis that we won rights to one-day internationals, one-day domestic cricket and test match highlights. So we did that and we took it to Lord McLaurin, who, who was running the board. He said it, it looked a perfect plan, but anyway, he'd like to get cricket delisted because it would make it a more competitive marketplace. Increasingly, the writing was on the wall for the BBC. They managed to cling on to test matches in 1994, but when the rights came up again in 1998, it wasn't just Sky who were in the picture. It was a terrestrial station, and they were wholly unprepared for that. When competition emerged in the shape of Sky and Channel 4, they just had no response to it. They were pretty shocked. I think their pitch was a bit lazy. I think that assumption is the mother of all you-know-whats, and I think they made the assumption that they'd had it from the beginning, and they'd continue to, to have it. They'd pioneered broadcasts back in the 30s. They'd provided a platform for the growth of the domestic and international game in England. But after 61 years of cricket on the telly, the BBC was no more. On the other side of the world, though, the nine juggernaut was rolling on through the 1990s. With enormous authority, 
Given a deal that had them not only broadcasting the game on Nine, but marketing it, there was no mistaking that cricket was Nine, and Nine was cricket. The ABC never promoted the coverage of television cricket in the way that Channel 9 did. They didn't market the personalities uh, nor their coverage in the way that Channel 9 did. And those personalities were having a life outside the commentary box. Comedian Billy Birmingham with his chart-topping albums, The Twelfth Man Tapes, further embedded the commentators into the mainstream. That's the best cotton bowl you would ever want to see, my friend. Mervyn Hughes, a magnificent reflex catch to take his hat on the Melbourne cricket ground. And the crowd's gone wild. It's a great day for Victoria, a great day for Australia. It's a great day for the world and it's a great day for the great man, Mervyn Hughes, the hero of the MCG. I love him. I want to book him. Get him up here. Get his ball settled down, will you? No, Tony, I won't fuck you. Fuck the rain. Come on, boy, get a grip on yourself. But even Channel 9 was suffering from the effects of staleness early in the new century. By then, Mark Nicholas had spent a couple of years with 9 and was now helming Channel 4's innovative coverage back in the UK. In a board meeting, Kerry had a real dig at the cricket. He said, these Channel 4 people are doing it better than us. And we were the number one. What's happened? What about that kid we had from 4? What happened to him? Get him to make it like Channel 4. Packer had been the force behind cricket on TV in Australia for 25 years, and he wasn't done yet. Despite all the success and riches that had earned him, he cared deeply about how the broadcast went day to day, maintaining a hands-on approach to feedback. I revered what had happened with World Series cricket. I, I enthused about the direction in which it had taken the game. He hated in-house talk, but he wanted you to focus on the game. Tell us about the game. People don't know what you know. Tell us about the game. But on Boxing Day in 2005, Kerry Packer died at the age of 68. A divisive and hostile figure he may have been, but the mogul's influence on the broadcasting of cricket on television was without peer. In his absence, the Big Four remained, but nine was set to be overhauled. An era was over. When Channel 4 and Sky were successful in their rights heist worth £103 million over seven years, there were similarities to the challenge Packer and Nine had faced back in the late 1970s. Viewing figures for cricket had dropped alarmingly. In 1997, only one day of the Ashes coverage had attracted an audience big enough to register in the top 100 sports programmes put to air on terrestrial TV that year. And much like Nine, Channel 4 knew that improvements in technology and a change in style were essential to arresting this decline and grow the game beyond its traditional base on their fresh new platform. We certainly tried to lift the level a bit. We appealed to younger people a little more. We embraced some new technology so there was more to talk about. I remember us thinking, we can do this livelier and better. The inclusion of Richie Benno was a masterstroke. It combined the experience he had as a pioneering broadcaster on Nine with continuity for those in England. When I first met with Channel 4 and agreed a deal, I was signed up before a production company, before a head of sport, or a producer, a director, and they said to me, what should we do? And I said, sign Richie Benno. He's 150, and I said, no, 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 sign Richie Benno. The sudden appearance of brash newcomers was bound to cause some consternation in a country that had only known the BBC for cricket on the telly, but nerves were soothed by Benno's presence from the outset. After the first day we went on air, Giles Smith, a very funny columnist who was then with the Tele Telegraph, wrote a column about our first day on air. And it was something like if Channel 4 were to assemble a, a series of programmes on penetrative sex, uh, as long as Richie Benno was there to say morning everyone, it would have been just fine. And that's how important it was. 
what a good ball. Anytime you see a spin bowler persuade a batsman to cover his stumps with what seems the perfect defensive delivery and then there is a crash of ash, you know you've seen something special. Benno provided that continuity, certainly, but everything else was about to change. Not least the instantly recognisable BBC theme tune. How do you solve a problem like Soul Limbo? Nick Stewart, who discovered you too in his days with Island Records, came round one night. About midnight, we sort of cracked it with a piece that was pretty good, um, sort of ticked a lot of the boxes. And then he suddenly, as, as we were cracking it, he said, hang on, hang on. And he went back to the car, fifth or sixth time. And he came back up and he whacked this CD in. Bop, 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 bad. And I went, oh my God. That, that, that's it. It's called Mambo Number no. 5. I said, what? <laughs> And we just loved it. We looked at each other and we said, this is it, this, this is it, this is it. Armed with a visionary producer in Gary Francis, determined to bring an entirely fresh approach and supplemented by a vigorous team champing at the bit, Nicholas had all the tools he needed at his disposal. He just needed approval from above and he got it. Michael Jackson, who was the chief executive, got up to go. I said, Michael, before you go, what about dress? And he turned around and he smiled. Don't mind, he said, but no ties. And I said, T-shirts? And he said, I don't mind, but no ties. This game isn't the property of any privileged class. Just as Brian Johnston had anticipated Benno's law 43 years before, the new kids on the block were still, quite rightly, playing to some old, and in this case, Reithian rules, but with a crucial modification. You know, if you ask me to crystallise what we were most trying to achieve, there's a lot of ease there. There's educate, enthuse, entertain, but get rid of elitism was one for me. A headwind was a truly woeful England team in 1999. After their home loss to New Zealand in Falls first summer, they found themselves on the bottom of the test ranking. However, that £103 million made central contracts possible at last, which in turn gradually produced better results on the field. And their new approach behind the microphone found favour with no less an authority than the national coach himself. Duncan Fletcher said that in 2000 that the Channel 4 coverage had done as much for the game in the country, if not more, than the players. He felt that our, our approach to the game had given everybody a feeling of brightness around cricket. Sure enough, England beat the West Indies thrillingly with some performances and catches and wicket-taking bursts that were up there with any in the history of the game. Another one gone! Four in the over! You wouldn't write the script. You wouldn't put it in a comic book. The performances on the pitch just got better and better. By 2005, the final year of the broadcast deal, both the Channel 4 machine and that England team were at the peak of their powers. We had a commentary team of Atherton and Slater of a more modern era. Um, Benno and Greg. Greg gave us a tremendous global effect. His impact around the world had been great. And the cricket was for the ages. Nicholas and co were at their best in the most dramatic moments and the public were watching in unprecedented numbers as the series reached its climax with 8.4 million watching the Saturday of the thrilling Nottingham test. Then 10 million tuned in for the historic final day at the Oval. It was golden. That is very good. The swing works. The Oracle again. Quite brilliant from Simon Jones. Incredible. Oh, 
Oh, Stephen Hermerson with a slower ball. One of the great balls. Given the moment, given the batsman, and given the match, that is a staggering gamble that's played off for Harmerson. Certainly the best year of summer of my working life. Oh, hello! Massive! Massive! One of the most magnificent strikes you'll ever see. And of course, there was Yozza, Simon Hughes, journeyman county bowler and writer on the game, had become the analyst. This unlikely figure had carved out a niche for himself and almost impossibly cult status as he channeled his simple enthusiasm into explaining the game to novices and experts alike. Yozza had a crack at jargon busting and did it brilliantly. Well, I'm so excited, I can hardly hold the microphone. He was unfussy, had a much better eye for the journalistic aspect of, of it, was much more ruthless with the edit, was much less self-engaged by the moment on television. Slip fielder, uh, close to the wicket position. If the batsman makes a slip, he pays the penalty. It had been an epic summer. On the 12th of September 2005, England had finally got their hands on the ashes after a 16-year wait. But the country was about to lose a defining commentary voice. The producer wanted us to sort of announce it and, 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 and then have a word from him. And he wouldn't have that. He, he said, no, I don't want that. I always carry a lot of music around with me, and one of the great ones for me is uh, Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman singing that duet, that wonderful duet, Time to Say Goodbye. And uh, that's what it is, so far as I'm concerned. Time to Say Goodbye. I can add to that. Thank you for having me. It's been absolutely marvellous for 42 years. I've loved every moment of it. And uh, it's been a privilege to go into everyone's living room throughout that time. What's even better, it's been a great deal of fun. That was how he ended. No one ever saw Richie walk across the ground. You, you saw all these heads, 22,000 heads. And suddenly the cheers changed from England to Richie. And that's apparently when they started to cheer him and sing his name, that apparently Greggy says he shed a tear. I don't care, mate. I don't care what anybody tells me. I'm telling you the then I shed a tear. And with that, after 42 years and 235 test matches in England, Benno was gone. This Australian, more than anyone, was the voice, the face and the character of cricket in England with a unique style all of his own. If you were summing up, Richie, as a commentator, you would do worse, I think, than to use the wicket of Michael Kasprovich at Edgbaston. It's masterful in its timing and in its storytelling. Richie, in perfect sync with the moves by the director in the choice of pictures, as Jones dives, all you hear is Jones! Jones! And you realize he's caught it. The camera switches to Bowden and you wait. And as Bowden starts to lift the crooked finger, you hear Bowden. All he said, and I mean, still, it's got goosebumps coming all over me now. It is absolutely brilliant, and you think that's that's it? They were the two key figures at the key moment. Kasprovich, the band to go, and Harmerson has done a despair on the faces of the batsmen. And he pauses, and then he says, "Joy." 
for every England player on the field. And that was it. Benno was a firm believer that cricket should be broadcast free to air, so it was no surprise he hung up his microphone. And despite the award-winning coverage that Channel 4 had provided since 1999, the biggest bid was elsewhere. Taking advantage of that fateful government decision to delist cricket, the ECB went one step further than they had seven years earlier with Sky and now handed them the entire product. Free-to-wear live international cricket on TV in England was over. It broke my heart. There's no other way to describe how I felt, really. Seven unforgettable years on the air, crystallised by the greatest series of them all. 80 people work on this production, and if you've enjoyed it as much as we have, then we finish happy. Best of all, England have won the Ashes. I'll be honest, it still hurts me now, you know. It was deemed a potential catastrophe by Wisden's editor, Matthew Engel, writing that it would shrink the game beyond repair. But in India, where watching cricket on the TV cost next to nothing, the opposite was true. Everybody was watching. The people power factor was extraordinary, shaping not only the new decade, but framing the new century as well. Within 10 years of casting Dordashan to history, with its grainy footage and irregular cast of characters, Indians were demanding coverage of their new heroes, and that their new Indian commentary heroes deliver that coverage. Sunil Gavaskar, Ravi Shastri and Harsha Bogle. A distinctly Indian style was emerging. We saw this greater confidence coming out of India. In fact, attitudes became really quite combative. And the television coverage became more aggressive, more commercial. Somebody like Ravi Shastri bought cricket into the modern era. Nobody sat back anymore. Nearly everybody threw themselves forward. Money was pouring into Indian cricket from huge advertising budgets, but those advertisers needed slots to fill. Gone were the days of reflecting on events in the field between overs. If you've got something to say, you better jump in and say it. Because the Indian model is so advertising-driven that if you pause and lingered and if you said, oh, that was, that was really nice, wasn't it? It had a little bit of room outside off and you took advantage of that. Sorry, you're gone. If that's the last ball of the over, you're gone. Because your revenue depends on advertising revenue. It may be a model that frustrates commentators, but it reaches the parts other countries cannot reach. Viewing figures in India continued to skyrocket, informing the profound influence that the BCCI would have over the global game. As for who was fueling this boom, it's a familiar tale. A tale as old as synthetic commentary and Bradman. Television networks live off heroes. So television networks in India were all Tendulkar. Television networks were all Dhoni. From Tendulkar to Dhoni to the IPL to global cricketing supremacy, it can all be traced back to the explosion of television as India opened itself to the world. The BBC had driven the one-day boom in the 60s. Packer and Channel 9 introduced money, razzmatazz and day-night cricket in the 70s. And now the Indian TV boom was set to transform the way the game looks across the globe in the 21st century. Thank you to Mark Nicholas, Dan Woodell, Jim Maxwell and Harsha Bogle for talking with us on this fourth episode of Calling the Shots. Before we go, a reminder that Calling the Shots is being produced in partnership with The Pinch Hitter, a fabulous new initiative. During this time of global uncertainty, the exciting new digital magazine will be released once a fortnight, chock full of contributions from some of the best freelance cricket writers in the world. Calling the Shots arrives alongside each edition of The Pinch Hitter, which you can subscribe to at thenightwatchman.net. There's a link to Edition 4 sitting in the show notes for this episode. It is being made on a pay-what-you-can-afford basis, with all financial contributions going back into commissioning more brilliant cricket writing. 
In closing, thanks to Jay Mueller at Bad Producer Productions for making this show possible. Call in the Shots is another proud member of the Bad Producer family. For more of their shows, jump on badproducerproductions.com. That's all from us today on Calling the Shots. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for Episode 5 when we explore a different kind of cricket broadcasting story when the sofa became the commentary box. Until Until next time, time, bye bye for now. now.